Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer, coming to you tonight from the NPR studios in Washington, D.C. And Marisa, you can't say we picked a dull week to be here. That is true. The Democrats' impeachment inquiry is heating up, and we caught a few California representatives at the center of the probe for a special edition of Political Breakdown. And, and of course, the speaker has been... Everywhere this her, week. That photograph of her standing up across the table from Donald Trump has been quite uh, become quite iconic already. But if you did miss that impeachment update, by the way, from Wednesday night, make sure to subscribe to Political Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find it right there in your feed. Nice little ad there, Scott. Yeah, Thank I you. tried. Thanks. <laughs> well, tonight we're going to be joined by Orange County freshman rep- Representative Katie Porter. But first, we want to check in on the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. And for that, we're joined by a man who... You know, we came to D.C. to see, but he's in Iowa. Scott Detrow from NPR's uh, politics team. Scott, how are you? I was really hoping to see you in person, but, you know, they send me to Iowa a lot these days. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there's a few things happening there as well, not just there. on Capitol Hill. So you were at the debate this week. Um, as we said, we've been talking a lot about impeachment, but we kind of want to shift our focus since we're lucky enough to have you. Um, I want to ask you, because we did have two Californians on stage, of course, Senator Kamala Harris and billionaire Tom Steyer. Um, how, how do you think they did? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like either of them are really breaking out of the pack at this point. Yeah, and I'm actually heading to a Kamala Harris event uh, later today that that I'm curious to see how that goes, because let's let's talk about Steyer first, because I think he he has a more straightforward storyline. He's been spending a ton of money, so much more money than a lot of the other candidates, running advertisements, trying to raise his name ID. And he succeeded in that he's able to now be on the debate stage. This was the first time he qualified for a debate because of polling, but he hasn't really broken through beyond that. He's in the low single digits, and he isn't really a factor that I think a lot of voters are thinking 
talking about. Harris, it's a much different story. Uh, early summer, she was really breaking through. She was getting big, excited crowds in Iowa and elsewhere. But, you know, she's been really been struggling the last few months, and I think that she would acknowledge that. Her campaign would acknowledge that as well. One reason when I talk to voters about it seems to be there have been so many moments where Kamala Harris comes out for one health care approach, then shifts and talks about another one. She comes out for one approach on like when she talked to the NPR politics podcast about saying she would uh, her administration would charge President Trump with crimes and then backtracks from it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of voters I've talked to just feel like, you know, we're not sure what Kamala Harris stands for. We want to like her, but she doesn't have a clear uh, platform like, say, Elizabeth Warren does. So we know, you know, this is the year that California um, is supposed to be a little less of the piggy bank because we have this early primary. We're on Super Tuesday. Um, And our ballots actually go out the same day as the Iowa caucuses. But it doesn't seem to us in California like the campaigns have really pivoted out west that much. Is that your sense, too? Or do you think um, they're trying to, as many of the Democrats say, walk and chew gum at the same time? (laughs) I think I think it's definitely on a lot of campaigns minds. You know, they mention it a lot to me. They mention that fact of mail in ballots. Uh, I, I, I think you have seen a little bit more of California in the rotation than than previous years. The thing I'm curious about is is how much candidates alter their overall strategy. Right. Will you see campaigns making time to fly out and do events in California after Iowa, but when they're also campaigning in New Hampshire and South Carolina? Or are they just going to try and spend a lot of money there and do the traditional California campaign of just running a lot of television ads? Uh, a lot of the campaigns that I talk to think that the overall just expensiveness of California really limits the number of campaigns who can seriously compete there. And Scott, I know that initially Kamala Harris's campaign seemed to downplay the importance of Iowa, but now they're putting all the chips or many of the chips there. And what evidence do you see on the ground? And as, talk, as you're talking to voters, like what is the evidence of her presence in Iowa? and how big of an impression she's making given, you know, the sort of a late start for a ground game. Yeah, I think the campaign is talking a lot about its increased focus on Iowa, but I think they're still at this point talking about it a bit more than they're actually doing it. We have seen her campaign in Iowa more, and and that's going to continue to ramp up. But other campaigns, like Pete Buttigieg's campaign, South Bend, Indiana mayor, I was covering him last night. He has been consistently focused on Iowa like a laser for for several months now. And, And even more importantly, he's been airing ads for about a month and a half nonstop. Kamala Harris was running TV ads in Iowa in August and then stopped doing so. It's not clear when she's going to start again. So I think she's got a lot of ground to make up, especially because Iowans are so into the fact that they're the first state to weigh in that uh, I I think some weren't quite excited to hear somebody say in in mid-September that they're suddenly going to focus on Iowa. I think a lot of the thinking here is, well, we've been here all along. Of course, Harris does have a lot of big endorsements here. So uh, and she's got time to to make up ground. The thing that her campaign and every single campaign says, especially the campaigns who are lower in the polls, say is that Iowa has a tradition of breaking late. And a lot of campaigns have won Iowa when they didn't start to rise in the polls until December or January. And it is still only October. All right. NPR (laughs) NPR (laughs) political correspondent Scott Detrow in Iowa. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your very busy schedule. It was nice to talk to you. Hope to see you in person when that that early California primary happens. Let's make it happen. Come on out. All right. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Orange County Congresswoman Katie Porter. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. (laughs) 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to be in the office of Orange County Congresswoman Katie Porter. Congresswoman Porter, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. So it's been a year since uh, we last caught up with you at KQED. You were running for office then. Um, I guess to start, just tell us what it's been like being a freshman Democrat on the Hill the last year. There's definitely been a lot of opportunity to learn, um, both in terms of substance, and that's probably my favorite part of the job, is the, the number of issues that I get to learn about. Learn from my constituents, I might tour a business or meet with an advocacy group, get to learn here in Washington from some of my more experienced colleagues, and frankly, from some of the new good ideas that my freshman colleagues are bringing. So for me, the most fun part of the job has been sort of learning the policy, learning the issues. Um, the hardest part of the job has been learning where everything is. I was um, going to ask. I literally spent a a good chunk of the first month or two just roaming the hallways. Um, So it was a great way to get to meet a lot of people because I would stop every third person and be like, I was told to turn left, but that's a dead end. And now I'm four times yesterday. Yes. I wound up at one point in a like walk in deep freeze, which is definitely not the way to the Capitol. So (laughs) yes, it's, it's a, it's Byzantine maze. So one of the things about being a Southern Californian is I'm used to being able to do everything outside. So I have to have a very hardy staff because no matter the heat or the cold, I like to go outside when I go back and forth from my office to the Capitol because then I don't get lost. We always like to start on the show with like pe- where people came from. And I think you grew up in Iowa. Um, tell us a little bit about that and growing up there, what that was like. Yeah, I'm a sixth generation Iowan. My whole family is from there. And I was uh, born on a farm. Uh, my dad was a farmer. We lived through the farm crisis in the mid-1980s. And at that time, like so many families, when there's a financial crisis, my mom had to go to find a new job. Um, she was driving 60 miles um, each way, um, each day to work. And my dad went to work for um, a small bank um, that had actually closed because of the bad loans and had reopened. So I think my interest in kind of the struggle families face in making ends meet, my interest in making sure that we're trying to prevent big economic downturns that destabilize families and communities really comes directly out of my having lived through that in Iowa. And of course, we saw all this over again when I was an adult with the foreclosure crisis. Um, And so the work that I did for California, trying to help families get the help that the banks had promised, be able to keep their home if they could, and if they couldn't, be able to have as smooth of transition out as possible. All of that economic dislocation was really something that was unfortunately part of my growing up. Is that something that your parents drew a line through? Like, did they understand the sort of bigger um, powers at play that were making, you know, that a reality for your family? Or was that something you kind of came to on your own? It's a combination. I think my parents certainly understood that there were factors like, you know, the weather and the grain embargo. And I mean, it was an, econo- an international economic crisis to some degree, the, the cost of land, things like that. But how people experience 
explain economic hardship to themselves is, a, is not always fully rational. And so there are people every day in this country who are laid off because jobs are being outsourced or because their company's relocating the business. And even though they might be laid off with tens or hundreds or even thousands of colleagues, for each individual person, it often feels like, why is this happening to me? Um, we have a kind of meritocratic idea in this country. It's part of capitalism that if you work hard, you can get ahead. The problem is if you can work hard and fall behind in a capitalist system too, and that is not necessarily just the fault of the individual, but it's the fault of all of the macroeconomic issues that we think about today on the Financial Services Committee. Well, in fact, you ended up at Harvard and you were a student of Elizabeth Warren's uh, who championed the Consumer Protection Act. Um, <clears throat> what did you learn from her about explaining these complicated economic issues in ways that ordinarily, ordinary people can understand? No, I remember very distinctly the first day of bankruptcy class with Elizabeth. Um, I was a third-year law student. I was sitting in the front row, um, and I remember the door even opening. She didn't say anything, but you could just tell from her energy that she had entered the room. Um, and she gave a terrific first-day lecture. I still have the notes. I use it as a basis of my first-day lecture when I'm teaching bankruptcy. And what she really talked about was the fact that bankruptcy and kind of what we do when people can't pay their loans or can't pay off their debt is sort of an inevitable question of having a capitalist economy. So the great thing about capitalism is that it incentivizes risk-taking. It creates, when it's working well, it creates opportunity um, and people can get ahead. They can borrow to buy a house. They don't have to have inherited wealth to do it. But the flip side to that is some of those loans and some of those economic risks, whether it's starting a small business um, or buying a car, some of those things don't work out. And so then we have to have law and protections to figure out how are we going to help people get back up and become productive economically again. And so bankruptcy, it seems like for some people it's a depressing topic. It's about kind of hardship. But really what it's about is about what do you do after the hardship to give people that fresh start. So walk us through, like, how did you get from Iowa to Harvard and then eventually out to California? What was the path there? Yeah, so um, from Iowa, so I, so I went to Yale to college and then to Harvard to law school. And was that expected in your family? Um, so my family all went to Iowa State. So I would say it was absolutely expected that I would go to a college and that college would be called Iowa State and I would be a cyclone like my parents and aunts and uncles and even my grandfather and grandmother went there. Um, the fact that I went to Yale was definitely not expected. I'm curious um, like what like sometimes people say they had a mentor or somebody that you know told them you know you should really aim higher like what was it for you? For me it was um, something that happened to me during middle school and so there was an academic researcher at Iowa State whose area of research was gifted kids and how best to provide enrichment to gifted kids and what the effect were on those kids, both academically but also socially and emotionally. And so she needed research subjects. So she reached out to all the public schools in Iowa and said, hey, do you have a, a smart kid um, that can come to the campus for a couple weeks? And my school district nominated me. So I spent three weeks on the campus at Iowa State. In the morning, I took a college-level course in writing. And in the afternoon, they did psychology experiments on me. So I learned everything from, we did a, a career aptitude test, was my favorite one. And my number one career came back, 
vending machine repairman. <laughs> so, you know, that could be, if this doesn't work out, that could be an incredibly satisfying career. What was they didn't even two? have the right gender. Lawyer was on the list, teacher was on the list. I mean, some things that did come to fruition were on the list, but vending machine repair person must have a lot of satisfying elements to it. Um, and so, but that real experience, then they tracked us for years after that. And so a few years later, um, they sent us a, a little booklet called Opportunities for Gifted Kids. And so that is how I then learned about um, Andover, the boarding school that I went to. Um, I knew that my parents didn't have any money. This was the wake of the farm crisis. And so I wrote a little pre-printed, pre-stamped postcard. And I wrote to every single place that said financial aid available. And I said, please send me information. And so I actually thought Andover was a summer camp. Um, it's actually a year, they do have a summer program. But if you just say, please send me information, they think you want to go for the school year. Um, and I remember that first day in Andover, I'd never been east of the Mississippi, and waking up and you know just rushing to the door to see what it looked like. And of course, it looked a lot like Iowa. There was grass and trees and squirrels and buildings and all the same thing. Um, but it was really that early experience in seventh grade that opened my eyes to some other kinds of careers. At the time growing up in Iowa, probably the best educated person that I saw on a regular basis in terms of career opportunity was actually our veterinarian. Um, and so that was when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. That seemed like a job for smart people, a job where you could help um, help people and, and learn. So. so you go to Harvard Law School, right? And then after Harvard Law School, so this I'm going to go through quickly. So follow me around. This is like where in the world is, you know, Katie San Diego. So I went to, um, started off in Arkansas in Little Rock, where I clerked for a federal judge for a year. Um, and that was an amazing experience. He had incredible high ethics and professionalism standards and was really known for being incredibly collegial. Um, and so I took a lot from that. I then went to Portland, Oregon, where I had taken the bar and I practiced law at a large law firm there. From there, I went back to Iowa for a few months where I worked at an amazing plant nursery um, while I started writing my first academic article. Um, then I got a job at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which was a newly found law school. From there, I went back. I was recruited to go back home to the University of Iowa. Um, um, and I spent four years on the faculty there. Um, and as I was getting tenure there, I got asked to do a visiting year at Berkeley. Um, and so I taught at Bolt for a year. And then I was asked to do a visiting year at Harvard. Um, and so I arrived at Harvard very excited about the potential to do in-person collaboration with then Professor Warren. And I no more than got there than the Congress passed Dodd-Frank. Um, and Elizabeth got asked to come and, and be part of the Treasury Department and help stand up that consumer agency. And then from Harvard, I was recruited by at the University of California, Irvine. So I've been in Irvine now eight years, a little more than eight years, and this is the longest I've lived anywhere in my adult life. So this really is home. And you were, uh, in, while you were in California, chosen as one of the mortgage monitors during the, after the uh, mortgage meltdown and Kamala Harris was attorney general at the time. What was your job uh, and how did you get chosen and what did you learn from that? So our then attorney general, now Senator Harris, I think in the wake of that negotiation with those big banks, I think she had a really important insight about the, some of the differences between criminal prosecution, which was her background, and these kinds of civil settlements that were a big part of her job as attorney general. And I think one of them is that, you know, when you get a criminal conviction and someone is sentenced to jail or prison, they, they go. Right. There's a parole process and this and that, but there's accountability. On the civil side, I think she felt like I've spent a year or more fighting and fighting to try to get help for Californians. And there's a potential that these banks could sign this deal, 
promise to make changes and then go right back to business as usual. And so she put me in this role as monitor. California was actually the only state that chose to have this kind of setup. Um, and so our focus was on a couple different things. One, helping people get information. Often these legal settlements are so complex that the most needy families actually can't digest and deal with the, the you know, eligibility qualifications, the paperwork, all of those um, hoops. And so our job was to help families navigate that um, and then to make sure the banks were doing what they promised. So if we saw blighted property or a county code official would bring that to our attention, we would call that, call that out with the banks, try to get it fixed. The banks weren't following procedures. We encouraged homeowners to reach out to us. So uh, during all of this uh, academic building and then work for the government, you found time to have three children as well. Correct. So I had um, I had my children on the tenure track. Um, and so, you know, when I hear now Elizabeth Warren talk about kind of her experience being in the workforce and being pregnant, um, you know, I remember asking Elizabeth, you know, I think I want to start my family. And, um, you know, her relaying the story to me about how hard it was for her to be pregnant in the, in the workplace. So I have three children. They are um, 7, 11, and 13. Um, they are very politically astute children. Um, they know a lot about current affairs and a lot about politics. And they're not too impressed with mom. They're impressed that mom knows other political figures that they think are impressive. So, like who? Who, who um, she impre- So I did a program by? recently with uh, Cory Booker, um, and my son at the time was a big Cory Booker fan, and so we had to get, you know, Booker merch and all this. My son is, my middle son is a big Kamala Harris fan. He feels like she's our you know, our candidate, because she's the Californian in the race. Um, my daughter is named Elizabeth, so I'll let you figure out who she supports for president. Was so, she named after Elizabeth yes, Warren? Yes, she was. Yes, she was. So it's a very, I mean, my kids, I think, enjoy this, but there's some real hardship for them, too, in terms of my being gone, um, often getting back home. I mean, it's constantly a push to try to get back to them in time to, to have meaningful time with them. Well, I want to ask you about that because something that came up during your campaign um, basically brought up when your Democratic opponents was your very difficult divorce. You had been abused by your ex. And I know that it was you were sort of forced to talk about that publicly, maybe not something that you planned to. But I'm curious um, what you brought from that because this was a year, 2018, we saw so many women running. We saw the Me Too movement happening. I mean, what t- talk about just what it's been like and, and, and are you ultimately – um, glad in some ways that you've had to share that story. I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, on the one hand, from a public policy standpoint, from the standpoint of making a difference in people's lives, I'm really glad that I was able to talk about it. And even after I got elected, as we were debating the Violence Against Women Act, I was able to tell a story from my own life about the difference between having an untrained versus a trained law enforcement officer. And it, it my experience was incredibly different with, with two different officers. And so one of the things the Violence Against Women Act tries to do is to create, um, you know, skilled, trained officers who know how to respond in that kind of situation. And I saw firsthand what happens when when you don't have that kind of training. I also saw what kind of amazing difference it can make in, in helping a family when you do. Um, from, a, you know, from a personal standpoint, I think I was worried about the effect on my kids. And you know, we just convened in Orange County this past week on, on Monday, I guess yes, Monday, day before yesterday, we convened a round table on domestic violence. And one of the things that a lot of the advocates, law enforcement, um, folks, family law lawyers were talking about is that really the goal in a domestic violence situation is to 
to think about it from a restorative justice standpoint. So it's we do want to hold people accountable. We want people to be safe. There's a role for law enforcement um, in it, but the real goal is to get the abuser as well as the victims the help that they need so that the pattern can stop and not repeat. And so in my case, I'm, I'm very pleased that my ex-husband um, has a good positive relationship with the kids going forward. Um, and that's something that I, that I hope we can continue to think about. How do we provide resources for that? Um, that said, you're a single mom, you're a congresswoman, you're bi-coastal. Like, I mean, we like to ask everyone, men and women, how do you handle your job and the kids? But I mean, I feel like for you, this must be especially challenging. How, what is, is there any routine? Like, what what is this like? Because I feel like you've always worked, but this must be like next level craziness. I mean, it's definitely, um, the, there's an unevenness to this job in terms of being both, you know, you're either here or you're there and you're back and you're forth. And so I find the physical, um, the physical travel part of it to be complicated and just to be inaccessible for roughly 20 hours a week while I'm in transit between the two locations, I think is a real challenge. Um, and so one of the things we're doing is we're having conversations with other freshmen and with the majority leader about how can we improve the calendar um, here in Congress? And that's not just a family issue. It's also an issue about really using our time. Um, and so how can we have hearings that don't aren't scheduled in conflict with each other? We cannot be in two places at once. And, and most of my colleagues feel really strongly that we should be in attendance at those hearings. But it's hard to be in two places at the same time. So I think being very organized helps. Having very resilient kids helps. Um, frankly, I couldn't do what I do without amazing public schools. The fact that when I send my kids to school in the morning, I know that they're safe, that they're learning, um, that they're in a good environment. That, that peace of mind is really important to allowing me to then focus fully during the workday on the work that I do. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer along with Marisa Lagos, and we're here in Washington in the office of Orange County freshman Democrat. Katie Porter, um, you have dis- you have developed quite a reputation as a freshman member of Congress. Uh, you've been described as the most feared freshman. Uh, you're also one of the most prolific fundraisers among freshmen. But about that feared part, uh, there are a couple of videos, at least a couple, that have gone viral. One of you questioning or lecturing, maybe would be a better word, uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, over Let's not forget the Oreo Ben Carson And moment. Ben Carson, right. But, you know, what? Um, you've gotten some pushback from even Maxine Waters, the chair from L.A. of your of your committee. What, what is your... What are you trying to accomplish with those moments? So at the broadest level, every time I get ready for a hearing and I begin to question a witness, what's really at the front of my mind is what are the answers that the American people need and need and want? So I'm thinking, yes, about my role in the questioning, but really the purpose of these hearings is to get information for the American people. And so often I've seen efforts by big banks and special interests to try to use jargon and acronyms and language and platitudes to kind of distract from the really fundamental issues that we're talking about. So I'm often thinking about how can I invite people into this conversation? How can I make this topic, whether it's payday lending um, or capital holding requirements for banks? This doesn't sound like something that every Americans should be engaging in, but really those capital holding requirements are how we make sure we don't fall into the kind of recession that we dealt with in 2008 and 2009. So the use of props um, and visual displays, kind of doing the math, um, I think that comes from my years in the classroom of having to teach about how how do I make these areas of law accessible. I taught something called the Uniform Commercial Code, and if that doesn't sound exciting to you, you're not alone. Um, When you teach something like the Uniform Commercial Code, you have to be the party. You have to make it 
interesting and show the human element. And so that's what I'm trying to do in those hearings. What, do you, what about critics? And they're mostly, I think, Republicans or maybe people from the financial services industry who say, well, you know, you're not really trying to elicit information. You're trying to embarrass the, the witness. Witnesses have to take responsibility for their answers. It's my job to ask the questions, and it's their job to give the answers. So I absolutely think some of those witnesses should be embarrassed at the answers they gave, but that is on them. Um, so you flipped a district that had been Republican since it was created, gosh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, I'm curious, I know you're not on intelligence, we have other Californians there, but with what's happening now in Washington around impeachment and just how divisive things are. What are you hearing when you go home to your district? What are your constituents saying to you? You came out pretty early for impeachment. Um, are you getting blowback? Or do you feel like people, especially those purple, those elusive purple voters, um, are hearing what Democrats are saying? I think that the fact that we did a very kind of educational approach to impeachment. So when I announced my decision back in June, um, our office put together a frequently asked questions. I did a direct a video. Direct, I didn't go on national TV. I went directly to my constituents in my own words. And I think one of the things that we need to respect is the fact that people are trying every day to get to their job on time and get the oil changed in their car and figure out how they're going to pay for Christmas presents. And so this idea that, oh, well, the only they would read the Mueller report makes me really frustrated. The American people's job is not to wade through a 400-page report. Their job is to rely on us to have read that report and to be able to explain to them why we've reached the conclusions we reach. So I definitely get some impeachment-related questions. I have people with strong feelings on both sides. Um, and frankly, that makes me happy for our democracy. Our democracy should have that kind of vibrant disagreement. But I'm really proud that in the 45th congressional district, those disagreements have remained civil, and we're able to have people expressing their opinions, including through protests, without um, without having any kinds of disturbances. All right, last question. We like to end on a, on a fun note. Do you, in all of your spare time, what do you do for fun? So my most recent hobby is I just learned how to surf. Um, and so oh, I Potomac? Was, I mean, I, no, I learned how to surf in California, <laughs> um, where we have great waves. Um, I'm definitely not ready for, like, the wedge in Newport, so I'm more um, of a you know, 26th Street, 25th Street kind of girl. Um, but I, I was a little bit afraid of the ocean. I, you know, I grew up in Iowa, so I'm comfortable swimming in a pool, but the ocean is a whole different thing. So I had to learn how to conquer kind of shore break, how to paddle out, um, how to get in the lineup and not let people intimidate me. And so it's a good physical challenge for me. And it's definitely, I can't think about Congress or my kids when I'm out there. I'm just trying to think about avoiding wiping out. Thank you, Congresswoman Katie Porter. Thanks for having us. Thanks so us. much for having us. Thank you. And that is going to be it for our D.C. trip and this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Make sure you check out our special impeachment edition that dropped yesterday. It's in your podcast feed. You can subscribe, rate, and review it. But for now, our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Seal Muller and right here at NPR, Zach Coleman. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. Let's give a special shout-out this week to Emily Dagger and all the folks at NPR who hosted us here in D.C. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Special thanks to NPR. I'm Marisa Lagos, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. See you back in California. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.